Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like drums, swords and chimpanzees. Or, oh God, do I have one for you here, Sam. Go-getters, bedwetters and page-setters, real fretters, (laughs) online betters and all hail (laughs) well-metters. That's ridiculous, isn't it? I, I think like I all should, of them, though. I think I should do that again, do you think? Yes, definitely. <laughs> go on, have another go. Let's do it. No, it was excellent. What was the second, what was the second one? Bedwet. Yeah. Or, yeah. Sam, go-getters, bedwetters and page-setters, <laughs> real fretters, online betters and all-hail-well-metters. I'm particularly <laughs> pleased with that one. Um, I thought really it was hilarious. But I think, Sam... Next time round, we should maybe think about doing poison. I've been wanting to do poison for rather a while. However, this is, of course, to meander around our thoughts because we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of smugness is in fact all about insults, contemporary politics and the Oxford AstraZeneca Covid jab. It's about the myth of the overconfident Icarus, he of the melting winds. It's also about schadenfreude, the joy of having someone else's smugness punctured. It's also all about Napoleon. Of course it is. It's about Nelson, Siegfried Sassoon's suicide in the trenches and the horrors of trench warfare during World War One. And it's also about the history of scrumping. Or did you know that the history of elephants is in fact all about drunken US behemoths, 18th century biological inquiry, pachyderms on the stage, newsworthy post-mortems. It's also all about early 20th century museums. And for some reason, there's a connection with the Duke of Devonshire. Those are two wonderful examples for you guys to go back to and listen from our back catalogue. You may be wondering who is doing all of this chatting. Let me just say that my fellow presenter, well, if history was a lie, a big lie like Donald Trump claiming his election was a fraud or Boris Johnson claiming he had in fact paid for his own curtains, this man would be the honest detective of the past. So virtuous is he, so radiant of integrity, truthfulness, trustworthy, so loyal, fair and sincere is he that all other historians would bask in his glow of honesty as he roots out the dishonesty, lies and corruption of the past. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hi, James. Hello, Sam. And I am a truly honest individual. However, the man not sitting opposite me, because we are social distancing in these grim days, still these grim days of lockdown, although there is a silver lining about to open, I think. Well, let's just say if he were an honesty related historian. He'd only be honest Abraham Lincoln himself. So wedded is he to the search for originality, rigour and significance in uncovering the historical truths of the past. Yes, it's your friend and mine across town, the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. Hello, Sam. Hello, 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 everyone. Um, Delighted today to be doing honesty. Um, Yes. Yeah, it's been fun, actually. I sat down and I had to think about it. And 
it, it made me realise just how integral honesty is as a theme towards the whole business of being a historian. And particularly when trying to work out in the documents who is actually lying to you from all those many years ago, who is trying to tell fibs and make you think different things about the past. So my first point, James, was just just how, how important this is. And I'm, I'm quite surprised we haven't done it yet. I know. And I was thinking that actually... Honesty, honesty is all about, it's about moral character, it's about virtues, it's about truth, integrity, it's being trustworthy, it's the opposite of cheating, lying, theft, and it's a characteristic that underpins so much of our society. It's codified in legal systems, it's bound up in honour systems and codes that find their way throughout society, it underpins the very epistemologies of knowledge at the heart of our civilization. In other words, it is fundamental to knowing what we know and how those truths are constructed. And it's also enshrined in the writing of history itself, something that of late we've seen challenged, as your introduction hinted at, not only with the, the attack that we see in America on truth, the rise of fake news and Donald Trump, but also in the UK with sleaze and cronyism and corruption and jobs and contracts for family and friends, and it's which seems a very far cry from the moral codes of honesty, which we seek our politicians to aspire to today. However, I have a test for you, Sam. Mm. I have a test. OK, if you were at a cash machine and there was money left there, or if you were in a shop and given the incorrect change, so you were given too much change, what would you do? Yeah, I, I'd... Uh... Well, the change I would say uh, you've given me too much. I'm, I'm very honest in this respect. Uh, the change I'd give me too much change. I would try and return the money from the cash machine if there was anyone visible. If there wasn't anyone visible, I would uh, give it to charity. Oh, I'd go Sam, and stick it in a box. How right I was in my introduction comparing you to <laughs> honest Abraham Lincoln because this was exactly what Abraham Lincoln did, the future president of the United States, when he was working as a clerk in a store in New Salem. Um, according uh, to the records, he realised that basically he had given a customer too little money. He'd given him too, too little change by only a few pennies. And he closed the shop and ran after the person to give him back his money. So honest was he? And this is something that absolutely goes through the rest of his life. It's something that's part of his political career. It's something that's part of his, his legal practice. He takes on this idea that that lawyers are corrupt. And he, he says to all, um, all potential lawyers, he gives them the following advice. Resolve to be honest at all events. And if in your judgment you cannot be an honest lawyer, resolve to be honest without being a lawyer. Choose some other occupation rather than one in the choosing of which you do in advance consent to be a knave. And this goes through his entire political career. And he's very much known as somebody who is really straightforward, who is really honest. In fact, his wife said of him that he is almost monomaniac on the subject of honesty. And before before I finish, I just want to give one a reading from one letter. Now, he 
during his presidency and he's he's a president during the the civil war and he gives he appoints as commander in chief uh, a, a a general uh, called major general joseph hooker and he writes this following letter to him uh, which shows i think his honesty i have placed you he says at the heart at the head of the army of the potomac of course, I have done this upon what appear to be to be sufficient reasons, and yet I think it best for you to know that there are some things in regard to which I am not quite satisfied with you. I believe you to be a brave and a skilful soldier, which, of course, I like. I have heard, in such a way as to believe it, of your recently saying that both the army and the government needed a dictator, of course, it was not for this, but in spite of it, that I have given you the command. Only those generals who gain successes can set up dictators. What I now ask of you is military success, and I will risk the dictatorship. There we are. Honest Abraham Lincoln, Sam. I love that. I think honesty in politics is certainly something we can we can explore. Um, and when I was considering where to go with this topic i immediately thought of um the uh the peace for our time you know 1938 and chamberlain waving that piece of paper around saying that hitler wouldn't be aggressive yeah <laughs> well done hitler um uh so yeah honesty in politics is certainly something you can do and you know a key part of that is the history of whistleblowing um and you know i was thinking about edward snowden who famously whistle blew, is that the past tense of whistleblowing, about about what the NSA and the CIA were up to. And that happened in 2013. It was nearly a, nearly a decade ago now. Um, but absolutely, a history in politics, I thought, was is, is a fascinating way of doing it. Um, but I've decided to think about something else, actually. Um, we we uh, definitely have discussed the gunpowder plot before, and I wanted to... Uh, initially think about torture or interrogation and how if someone is being honest or lying under duress, basically. And um, I initially was going to talk about Guy Fawkes and his torture, but then ended up thinking about the history of truth serum instead, because it's brilliant. (laughs) I haven't ever come across it before. Um, And it's a real eye-opener into what was going on in the medical world in the 1920s, particularly in America. So I want to talk very briefly about something called scopolamine, 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 I'm not sure, Uh, and the obstetrician Robert Ernest House. Um, So he's an obstetrician, this guy, right? And in 1922, he starts doing some work on um, this drug and its use as what he believes would be a truth serum. And there's a, a kind of a drive to find this mythical drug that would make people tell the truth. And he notes that during childbirth, women who are given this drug answer questions accurately, even while in a state of what he described as twilight sleep. And he noted that they were often exceedingly candid in their remarks. He goes on and does some um, experiments on prisoners in the Dallas County Jail. Anyway, cut a long story short, it doesn't work. But it's an example of how important and committed everyone was to the search for a wonder drug in the 1920s. And it carries on for um, at least 40 years ago. And um, the CIA are doing all sorts of experiments um, 
They use mescaline. They go back to the scopolamine as well and marijuana. Um, and they conclude that the effects of all of this is not much different from alcohol, which made me laugh a bit. So basically, the subjects become much more talkative, but it doesn't mean that they are any more truthful. <laughs> I love that. Uh, it probably means that if it's like alcohol, but they're liable to um, extreme exaggeration just to get a few laughs. Um uh, they even try LSD as a as a form of truth serum, but um, this is a literal quote. But it is found to be unreliable. <laughs> I'm not, not not surprised. The elephant did it. <laughs> yeah, 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 it wasn't me. Um, and there's a report here, just a conclusion from a CIA report in 1961, basically concluding it's all nonsense. The salient points that emerge from this discussion are the following. No such magic brew as the popular notion of truth serum exists. The barbiturates, by disrupting defensive patterns, may sometimes be helpful in interrogation, but even under the best conditions, they will elicit an output contaminated by deception, fantasy and garbled speech. A major vulnerability they produce in the subject is a tendency to believe he has revealed more than he has. I thought that was really interesting. Um, It's possible, however, for both normal individuals and psychopaths to resist drug interrogation. It seems likely that any individual who can withstand ordinary intensive interrogation can hold out in narcosis. The best aid to a defence against narco interrogation is for knowledge of the process and its limitations. So they're basically concluding here that you can be trained to resist it. Anyway, that, that's what happens at the end. That's in the 60s. Uh, it wasn't actually released until the 1990s. But I wanted to go back to this obstetrician, Robert House, and his work in 1922. And he wrote something called The Use of Scopolamine in Criminology. Um, and this is an article read at the section on state medicine and public hygiene of the State Medical Association of El of Texas at El Paso in 11th of May, 1922. And I, I love this because it raises... Um, so many complicated issues. In presenting my technique for the use of scopolamine in criminology, I do not desire to pose as a criminologist. There are lawyers who maintain that my idea is not constitutional, while others affirm that if it is permissible for a state to take life, liberty and property because of crime, it can be made legal to obtain information from a suspected criminal by the use of a drug. If the use of bloodhounds is legal, the use of scopolamine can be made legal. Although a dog's trail may lead to the door of a suspect, corroborative evidence is required for conviction. Likewise, all data secured by the use of scopolamine would have to be corroborated. But the legal points do not concern me. There are matters for the legislature and the courts to determine. We belong to a generation of universal education. Crime must be controlled by intelligence. And then he goes on. He's a bit ranty, this guy. I really like it. We as physicians should encourage the criminologist by lending to him the surgeon, the internist, whatever that internist is, and all of the rest of the resources of medicine, just as we have done in the case of the flea man, the fly man, the mosquito man, the bed bug man, and all other ologists. Now, he then goes on here. This is, this is the bit I love. I asked the question, by what process of reasoning should the state of Texas be more concerned in the conviction of the guilty than in the acquittal of the innocent? The following letter from an inmate of a Texas penitentiary may be of interest in this connection. So this is when he's doing his experiments at the Dallas County Jail. And um, he gets this letter. Upon notice of the test of twilight serum upon Scrivener in your custody, wish to say I am very much interested. I am serving a long prison sentence for murder of a man in Travis County, Texas in 1915. 
there was no evidence against me, only I was a poor Mexican. I would certainly be glad if I could be a subject of this serum, and if it be in your power, would you please forward this letter to the proper authorities? I ask for a test upon my innocence, sir, that I may be eliminated from charges as a result. Trust you will give this your due consideration. I will thank you in advance, etc., etc., and it's not the only uh, case here on um, the website, which I found it on. It's called Today, Today in Science, this particular website. And it shows us how this issue of honesty in this particular history is actually all tied up with issues of crime and racism. Surprisingly, numerous claims from black and Mexican prisoners. Um, it's also tied up with medical ethics. And um, I think you could probably sum it all up, James, and calling it the it's the history. It's the science of honesty as perceived in America in the 1920s. Oh, it's all about truth telling, Sam. Brilliant. Brilliant. OK, I'm going to take us from that back to Abraham Lincoln as a discussion about honesty and the Bible. And what I want to talk about is the swearing oaths of allegiance, in other words, testifying to the honesty that you will take into office with you, that is part of all sorts of ceremonies uh, around the world. But in particular, I want to start by looking at the swearing in of presidents, because what's very interesting is the way in which presidents, past presidents, have chosen to swear the oath of office on particular Bibles. And normally it's a sort of fairly significant Bible um, that has a particular history, or it is a family Bible. Now get this, um, President Barack Obama uh, was sworn in twice, and on both occasions he placed his hands on the Bible of Abraham Lincoln himself. And this Lincoln Bible was owned by William Thomas Carroll, who was a Supreme Court clerk, and it was used by Lincoln at his inauguration in 1861. It was then used by Obama in 2009 and 2013, and was most recently used by Donald Trump at his inauguration in 2017. And it's a Bible that the family donated to the Library of Congress in 1928, which is where it sits to this day. What's also interesting about Obama is that he didn't just choose the Bible of Abraham Lincoln to put his hand on, but he also used a Bible of Martin Luther King in his 2013 uh, inauguration. So his, his um, so-called travelling Bible that he carried around with him. And so when he swore himself into office, uh, he had hands on both Bibles. Now, what's telling um, is Joe Biden's choice. Joe Biden is a Catholic. And instead of using uh, Lincoln's Bible, as Trump had done, he used his family Bible. And this family Bible had been in the family for 127 years. Uh, it's a beautiful leather-bound Bible. It's about five inches thick. And what's fascinating about it, because I'm, I'm really interested in Bibles for the kinds of family histories that they tell us, is that actually in the Biden Bible, you've got the dates of all of the swearing-in ceremonies of the family. 
So Biden's, um, when he sort of went, you know, the other offices that he's held, his late son, Beau, used the family Bible when he was sworn in as Delaware's attorney general, for example. So, it, you know, so it's a really, you know, really significant thing in his in his family. Um, interestingly, Kamala Harris was also sworn in using multiple Bibles. I think she was sworn in with about three Bibles. Um, again, they're really significant. One of them was the Bible of the civil rights uh, activist Rosa Parks, though which was published in, in 1900. Um, she also uh, chose a Bible that belonged to uh, Thurgood Marshall, who was the first black Supreme Court justice, um, and she also used a Bible that belonged to a close family friend, uh, a woman named Regina Shelton. So we've got then the importance of these Bibles that are all about swearing your your honesty, sort of declaring your, your honesty and that you will hold your office uh, very well. Now, this use of swearing on Bibles, these oath books, is a very sort of legalistic thing. And we can date it back to the 19th century. Uh, and this is a time when the church held sway and people would do sort of business normally at the altar and they would swear on uh, on a book of gospels. This then in an English context, about 300 years or so later, we find it sort of enters as a practice adopted by the English courts and it's required of, of juries and, and, and people to take an oath on the Bible. And what we know about it from early Latin manuscripts that basically people would place their hands on the Bible. A Bible might be on a table, they might even hold it, they place the hand on it, they might kiss it, and then they would say the oath, a particular form of words, which we, you know, that, that you swear by Almighty God, um, which we have in, 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 in Britain today or in America, oath takers will, will say something like, um, so help me God. Um, now, the reason that books are that a book like a Bible is chosen is because of the connection between uh, between religion and and honesty, and in fact, what we're having is a with this swearing in this oath taking on the Bible is a public testament, not just a public testament, but also a secular and religious testament between which is a contract between the person who is going to hold office and not only the the nation um but also between the individual and god um and this is something that i think is also really symbolic in that it isn't just a sort of an empty gesture you are not merely signing a piece of paper but you are in effect doing something that is innately public. It's very visual. It's visual and physical. You're holding a book, you're slapping your hand on it, you're saying some words, and you are enshrining yourself to be honest within society. So there we are, Sam. Um, the honesty and the Bible. And and what's what's fascinating is that in a in a book in a tight in a world of Kindle and ebook readers, increasingly politicians and and officials in america are swearing in using electronic devices instead of these sort of rare books
Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hmm. I Fascinating. Yeah, honestly, in Bibles rather than yes. the Bible. Yeah, that's... Yes. No, there were so many... Um, how important do you think honesty is in growing up? Oh, very. How do you encourage your daughters to be honest? Oh, they are. They're they're honest, honest, do, honest, do, honest. Do you not need to encourage it? No, they they. I set them such a fine example, Sam. <laughs> very good. I thought you were going to say something else. <laughs> I threatened them. I threatened them viciously. No, the, they um, are. They are. They are so uncharacteristically honest that if you ever sort of say anything that is vaguely untrue, I am mercilessly censored for it. <laughs> oh right, my um, my my. I was walking down the high street with my kids once, and um, a old lady in front of us dropped a fiver. And my son picked it up and kind of ran after and gave it to her and came back. And my daughter was dumbstruck that Felix had actually done this. And oh. I, I think she would have pocketed it and gone and bought some earrings. So there you go. Um, I asked the question because there's this whole question of um, how you would instruct kids into something like honesty. And one of the ways it's been done in the past is to read instructive stories. Um I bet you can think of some instructive kid stories to do with uh, um, honesty, James. If not, I'll give you a clue. It's called The Adventures of Pinocchio. Oh, <laughs> I can. It's, it's he, he of the uh, elongating nose. Right, right. So um, I found out some great stuff about Pinocchio. And I was just thinking about this because I've got a big pile of kids' books, uh, which I was... Um, and nosing through the other day, and I suddenly was thinking about the themes of them. Uh, so, The Adventures of Pinocchio, it's a, it, uh, written in 1883 by the Italian Carlo Collodi of Florence. Um, so, principle here is you've got a you've got a wooden puppet uh, made out of some magical wood who dreams of being a real boy. And one of the, the principal characteristics of Pinocchio is that he has a, he's a tendency to lie. Um, it's, a, it's a story which is all about, uh, you know, the human condition and growing up, essentially. Um, his lies make his nose grow. Now, uh, I was doing some research around this, wondering what the best angle would be. And there are two different ways you can think about it, actually. You can uh, sort of literary critics have looked at it and have analysed the types of lies that Pinocchio tells, which is interesting in itself. And actually, um, just to briefly say that none of them are sort of evil. They're all one way or another well-meaning. And he's kind of led into it by initially being truthful and getting himself in a pickle because he's he's, he's basically tricked uh, for telling the truth. And that leads him to lie. And then he's caught out in lying. So it's um, 
everywhere he turns, he finds the world spitting in his eye, essentially. So you can look at the types of lies that uh, that he does tell. And um, I haven't really got the time to go into this, but I'd urge you to go back and have a look at Pinocchio and, um, and have a think about it, because it's really quite complex and it reveals a great deal about Italian society uh, at the time it was writing. And also the... Um, you know the the morals of the story are more com- much more complicated than simply do not lie because there are definitely times in the book where lying is actually uh, beneficial anyway um i came across a truly fantastic article uh, it's entitled can classic moral stories promote honesty in children and it was published in psychological science in the year 2014 and the the principle behind this is that a, a load of um uh, academics got together and decided to test the idea of whether these stories actually did what they were supposed to do. And there, um, I mean, essentially, they identified that there was no there was no existing evidence about whether the stories could actually promote honesty in children. I was just fascinated by the way they did it. What they did is they compared three different stories, one of which is Pinocchio, one of which is the boy who cried wolf. James, I think oh, you know I about know that. that. And the third one is George Washington and the Cherry Tree. Um, And they're all slightly different. So we've got Pinocchio. Okay, so we know that his nose grows when he lies. So the key thing here is that a bad thing happens when he lies, right? That's what you've got to bear in mind. And it's an embarrassing thing as well. Um, The Boy Who Cried Wolf, uh, for those of you who don't know this, but I suspect many of you will, you've got a shepherd boy. He repeatedly um, tricks, basically, nearby villagers into thinking that a wolf is about to attack the the the, the, the town's flock. And when, when a wolf evac- eventually actually does turn up, the boy calls for help, the villagers think it's a false alarm, um, don't do anything, and the sheep all get eaten. So you've got Pinocchio's story. Uh, this one, the boy who cries wolf, is ancient. It's actually one of Aesop's fables, Aesop being um, a, a slave and a storyteller from ancient Greece sometime around uh, the 600s BC. So very ancient indeed. And it survives, well, it gets translated into Latin in around the 15th century and then uh, become, it appears in Heinrich Steinhauer's collection of fables, um, early 15th century German fabulist. Um, point is there, something else. So you lie, something bad happens. In this case, all the sheep, um, all, all the sheep get eaten. Uh, then the third one is the, the cherry tree myth of George Washington. Now, this is different. So in the original story, what happens is what George Washington, the future president of the United States, he's six and he's given an axe as a gift. And he goes out in the garden and, and messes around with his axe and damages his father's uh, pride, pride of his father's garden. He damages his father's cherry trees. Dad absolutely loses it. Confines George, shouts at him, confronts him and and says, was it you? What have you done, essentially? And George says, well, I cannot tell a lie. And I did cut it with my hatchet. So he has lied, but he's now honest. Sorry, he cannot lie. He's, he's now particularly honest and he admits to it. What happens is his father embraces him and celebrates his that his son's honesty is worth more than a thousand trees. So in the final one, right, you've got the the result of honesty being a good thing. So you you, you don't nothing nothing horrendous happens. You're honest and it's it's good. So it's a positive story. So they did a very very clever experiment. Um, and what they do is first of all. You, you you get a group of kids aged between three and seven, 
In the task, I'm reading from the article here, children played a game in which they had to guess a toy's identity on the basis of only the sound that it made. But during the game, children were left alone for a minute and told not to cheat by peeking at the toy. And so they're put in a very, very tempting situation. They're told to identify what it is just by the sound. Then they're left alone and told not to look. And before they are then questioned about whether they're cheated, they are read one of these three stories. And what they discovered is that by reading them The Boy Who Cried Wolf and Pinocchio, in which bad things happen if you lie, it had... Uh, no no effects, basically. Um, uh, so these things that highlight the negative consequences of lying. But the George Washington story, uh, when they were told that, then they would admit, they would be honest, they would admit to, <clears throat> to having peaked. Um, and they then did a kind of a, a separate thing where they changed the nature of the George Washington story to one in which there were negative consequences of being honest. And then none of the kids admitted to cheating. So the, the kind of the overwhelming conclusion of this, which I thought was so good, is that the, the traditional ones of the boy who cried wolf and Pinocchio as a means of promoting honesty in kids. It doesn't work. And um if you think about the scale of this, which I think is really interesting, Pinocchio, right? It's the second most translated book in history behind the Bible. <laughs> that is some serious claim to fame. Um, so if you think of all of all of the, the times that's been read in history with uh, parents hoping to encourage their children to be honest, um, we now know that it doesn't work. <laughs> it's a massive waste of time. <laughs> Like the biggest waste of time over over a century of a waste of time in in something like two hundred and sixty different languages. So anyway, if you're writing some uh, some instructive uh, stories for kids in the future, uh, do please try and make sure that there is a positive uh, result of telling the truth rather than a negative one. Otherwise, uh, it won't work. Do you know, Sam? It's like we almost plan these podcasts about what we're going to say because um um and we don't. I mean, at least we don't know what each other is going to is going to come up with. And I think that's one of the things that's really, really dear to the concept. But in actual fact, I also uh, looked at children and honesty. And and one of the things that you've done there is you've looked at it from a from a, a sort of an adult perspective, trying to encourage children to be honest. But what I want to talk about is the culture of children themselves and the sort of language and lore of the playground and the kind of unwritten rules that that are sort of just soaked into childhood play that basically allow children to police their own honesty, to test their own truthfulness. And I've been reading again from that brilliant collection by the Opies, uh, The Law and Language of School Children, which is this big oral history project of children during the 1950s. And we're talking about 10 and 11-year-olds here. And one of the striking things about this is that they... It's a chapter I'm re- I read, chapter 8, called The Code Code of Oral Legislation. And basically what this means is there are a whole range of rituals and declarations and notes and verbal utterances and handshakes and all sorts of things that all taken together are a school child code for honesty 
Um, and I just want to talk to you a little bit about this. So it's the way in which you might swear allegiance and, and your own honesty. So I just want to give you some examples of this. And one of them is different ways of swearing. And you swear often on the Bible, which connects us to what we were talking about before. So you swear on the Bible, you swear on your life, you cross your heart, you swear on your honour, uh, you swear on the life of your mother. You might spit, you might link fingers like like pinky promise. Uh, my daughters and I do a, do a pinky promise. Uh, you might hold your hands up to God. You might make crosses. So all sorts of things um, and all sorts of sayings have come down to us from these 10 and 11 year olds. May I drop down dead if I tell a lie, for example. These aren't sacrilegious. These are deeply these are deeply religious that things that the that the children are saying as well, and they 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 say them with a real sort of conviction and vigor, and there are all sorts of pledges associated with God and honor on my honor, God's honor, scout's honor, crusader's honor, for example, honest to God, honest pirate, honest Injun, which is thought to come from um come from Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. So it comes over in, 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 um, as that story, uh, comes over to Britain, uh, from the United States. Uh, truth, straight, all sorts of things like that. Um, God's honor is probably one of the most common things, which also involves children licking the tip of their index finger and making a sign of the cross either on their on their throat or on another part of the of their body um there's also it's a very sort of boy thing to do very sort of manly thing to do is just is expressing honesty through a formal handshake you know that uh, a handshake as a as a deal is a sort of signing is a sort of um sealing bond between two individuals there is also the all sorts of oaths as i said on the bible um and you know children asking each other will you take your bible oath on it so there's a deeply religious thing there crisscross the bible never tell a lie if i do my mother will die from aberystwyth in the uh, 1950s here's my heart and there's the bible if I lie, I'll spit on the Bible, holy Bible, truly gospel. I swear on the gospel and on my mother's deathbed. There's the Bible open. There's the Bible shut. There's a cross for Jesus. My throat's cut. So this idea that that religion and, and swearing on the Bible is also tied up with their you know swearing on their own lives. Also crossing heart and fingers as a way of sort of promising you cross my heart hope to die stick a needle in my eye crisscross my heart all sorts of things associated with that cross your heart and spit cross your heart and hope to die put three crosses on your heart another one here cross my heart if i ever tell a lie put a rope round my neck then let me die clasp my hands look at the sky cross my heart and hope to die if I lie, I promise to die, so you can punch me in the eye. Then if I'm dead, you can hit me on the head with a poker. <laughs> the poker just added in there at the end. Uh, and other that. ones yeah, associated yeah. with dropping down dead. May I drop dead here if I tell a lie? God, let me drop dead this minute. Cross my heart and hope to die. Drop down dead if I tell a lie. God, send the lightning to strike my tree. And God, send the lightning if I tell a lee. Um, a sort of Welsh Welsh sort of version 
of that there. So all sorts of things associated with swearing in different ways. Also, lots associated with cutting their throat. Um, oaths sort of associated with that, which is really, really dramatic. And often this is accompanied by a, chil- a child um, licking their finger um, and then putting it across their throat to sort of show that, you know, they'll they'll sort of, um, you know, have their throat slit. And this is often accompanied with one of the following sort of sayings, wet my thumb, wipe it dry, cut my throat if I tell a lie. I wet my finger, I wipe it dry, I cut my throat if I tell a lie. My finger's wet, my finger's dry, God strike me dead if I tell a lie. And there are also various ways in which you children tested the truthfulness of others. So these tests, whether you're whether somebody has had a lie or not. And you ask them, for example, you know, what will you eat? And children have to reply that what that they'll eat all sorts of all sorts of things if they've told a lie, fire and brimstone, or that they'll tread on hot needles, um, or that they'll look up to heaven without laughing. So all these sort of I these ordeals. Um or they may be given the challenge uh, a challenge called cheese which comes from Penrith, um, which means that they have to repeat the word cheese ten times. And if they laugh, uh, they have been not been telling the truth. I'd be rubbish at that because I would just giggle immediately. Um, so there are all these ways of, of, of telling this. And one most curious um, is to do with is to do with spittle. Um, it's a test and it comes from London and it appeared in Notes and Queries, that brilliant um, journal, uh, which if, if, you've, if you're interested in anything noty and queryish, um, check out Notes and Queries because it's full of all sorts of fascinating information. If you've got access to digital archives, you can trace it all the way back to the 19th century. And this one comes from 1896. And I'll read it here. Sometimes when a boy has doubt about a matter, he attempts to get to the bottom of it by some such method as the following. After allowing some spittle to rest upon the back of his hand, he will raise the forefinger of the other hand, poising it above the spot whereon the spittle, or fat, as is as it is in boyish vernacular termed, rests, at the same time giving vent to the following doggerel. Little pig, little pig, tell me a lie, and I'll knock the fat clean out of your eye. And then, at the termination of the recital, he brings the ever-poised finger smartly down on the fat. In other words, brings the finger down on the spit. And if, as a result, the fat vanished, what had been doubted was true. If the blow caused the spittle to splash over the back of the hand and become more conspicuous than it was before, it was not true. So there we are, um, the veracity of honesty and truth-telling among children in the 1950s. Wonderful stuff, James. Well done. Um, I really enjoyed that. What a great episode. Guys, I hope you enjoyed it too. Do please follow us on social media if you want to come across more great great facts and see what we're up to. I'm at Dr Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, which I hope you are, do please follow my maritime history podcast, The Mariner's Mirror Pod.
And you can follow me on Twitter at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Unexpected Pod. You can also follow us on Instagram on and on Facebook. And if you will indulge me for two minutes, Sam, I just want to say a huge thank you to one of our followers from Austria, uh, a woman called Julia, uh, who really enjoys the podcast and really loved the one about cards. And you remember we were talking in that episode about political meanings of cards. Well, she's come up with a game, an Austrian game called Schnupsen, and she she wanted <laughs> us to, to she wanted us both to pronounce this Schnupsen, um, which is which is part sort of it's funny she says because Schnaps means booze. But the origin of it, uh, in this case, is in the Hungarian language. And what she she writes is that to play this game, you need what she describes as Doppeldeutschenkarten, which were very popular in Austria and Hungary and some Slavic countries because of the Habsburg monarchy. Um, and what she says is that this was a very popular game, dates back and is connected to resistance to the Habsburg monarchy in the 19th century, where resistance fighters of Austria and, German and Hungary wanted to demonstrate their position against the Habsburgs. And originally, these cards portrayed resistance fighters from Hungary, but then because of censorship, they, they tell the story of William Tell from Friedrich Schiller to demonstrate their position against the monarchy. He was a folk hero who fought back against the Habsburgs in the 14th century. Um, and the cards even named, she writes, that, um, that um, even, even the cards themselves are named after figures of that folk tale. So the cards became so popular that the Habsburg monarchy had no chance to stop the national spread or distribution. So there we are. It's wonderful uh, for people to be in touch. Julia from Austria, uh, thank you very much for getting in touch and greetings from greetings from Exeter uh, in the United Kingdom. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. And all of you do get in touch as well if you've got anything to share. Cheerio, guys. Bye, guys.